mentioned this last week. I know I did Friday, but I, but I think I've modified my thinking some since even Friday. What I'd like to do is this. Um, I'd like to plan to do Moby Dick's Moby Dick between six and eight weeks, which will bring us into the epic range. You know, if and the reason I'm doing that is the same for the schedule that we use when we were doing the epics, the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid. Um, Moby Dick's a lot more detailed than the Iliad or the Odyssey or the Aeneid. And I, those of you who started out remember how difficult it was to read the Iliad because you've got all these battle scenes, and, and you, but you managed to get through it. Um, this is a far more complex and detailed work, and it's longer in that way. And my concern is that we not drag it out. We could easily spend three months and get a lot out of it. But it just seems to me for the purposes, for our purposes, to find Christ, to, to learn to read better, become better readers, that six to eight weeks will do it. If we, if I, my purpose will always be to try to find the most important things in a section to not cover the whole book thoroughly. I, I, that if I were in a graduate class teaching graduates, that's what I'd do. You know, we would spend more time on it, but that's not our purpose. So in your mind, if you could just allow that we will spend about somewhere between six and eight weeks and see how it goes. If, if in my judgment, if you're okay with that, if, if it looks like we're covering it in six weeks, we'll stop. And if not, we need a little bit more time, we'll take a week or two or something like that. We'll just see how it goes, if you guys are okay. And I want you to remember, because this, it seems to me this is really something to look forward to. We're going to do Fox, well, Suzanne thought it would be a good idea to do some short stories. I'll ask you guys when we're done with this. Um, Doug, you want, to make, you want to make an announcement to everybody? No, there's just one person who's new, so everybody else... I know you wanted to get everybody's... I had everybody else's email. I just wanted to be sure if anybody was new that we could let them know if there was a change or something. Um, we're going to do... Our next book is Faulkner. Um, Faulkner's Go Down Moses is a collection of short stories that Faulkner wrote over a period of time and realized they were all dealing with the same topic. And it, it's, it's really wonderful. You guys won't appreciate this until we're done, I think. In fact, I know. Um, but having read Moby Dick and then going, well, having read all the epics and then reading Moby Dick and then going on, going on to Go Down Moses will be a treat because in Go Down Moses, excuse me, Faulkner's dealing with the Isaac theme, the chosen one. So you've got a North a North American, a, a Northerner, writing Moby Dick from the point of view of Ishmael, the outcast. Faulkner's going to write Go Down, Go Down Moses, dealing with the Isaac character. So it's going to be a collection of short stories, and, and not all of them deal explicitly with Isaac, but everyone, everyone has a bearing, direct bearing, on this question of the chosen one, Isaac. And most people who read literature, you know, modern literature, think the Bible's dead. It's gone. Here, the, in one of the, I think, one of the two greatest writers of the 19th century, Melville, the other one's Hawthorne, and, one, and probably the greatest writer of the 20th century, Faulkner, are taking Ishmael and Isaac stories.
So we're putting those two things together from a modern world which has um, long ceased to believe in God and seeing what these modern poets are doing with them. So in a, in a sense, we're picking up the theme that we began with. What, what do these poets have to show us in the modern world about our faith? Um, because they're not catechists, they're not speaking directly, you know that. Shakespeare didn't do it in Winterstep. But they're, they're seeing something that ordinarily most of us don't see. So the next work we do will be go down Moses. So when we finish this, it seems to me it's a real treat. We may stop and do, and remember what I said, go down Moses is a collection of short stories. So it's, it's, and it's a much shorter work. It's not nearly as dense as Moby Dick. Moby Dick is a pretty dense book. Um, not, not Go Down Moses. Go Down Moses is a collection of short stories and it's, it's relatively easy. When you get into some of his other works, he's going to present us with some real challenges. But anyway, after we finish Moby Dick, we can look at some short stories, some others by a variety of, you know, Hemingway and Eudora Welty and some other ones. Or we can go, to, go down Moses and then read some short stories, which is you know, I'll raise the question for you guys and see what you guys think when we get there. But that's that's where we're going. So six to eight weeks, okay, on Moby Dick. And that means you all have to read closely. That's <laughs> a teacher and you're coming out. Um, okay, that's... I, I'm sorry, what's your name again? Kathleen. Kathleen, can you introduce yourself? It's nice to have you here. Um, if you want to say anything. Um, I'm Kathleen O'Neill. Um, I'm friends with Mary and uh, Candy. Um, and Roseanne. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> and Roseanne. Um, why am I here? Um, I really don't read, so I think this is a good way to make me read. I skim stuff really quickly and not really have to think about it, and I think this is a good way to make me read and think. It's going to be hard to do that in this group. She's in healthcare too. <laughs> She's in healthcare with you? Do you guys work together? No. no. Mm -mm. no. I'm a medical technologist, so I do coagulation studies. Well, the two of you are in good hands with each other, you know that. Yeah, yeah. So. But I'm glad to be here. I'm glad to have you. Yeah. I think that's it, so we have a lot to do today. Mm -hmm. Could you check and make sure that's recording? They're on doc, I just checked. Thanks. Thanks. Yep. Yep. Um any any prayers tonight? Um, one one for Nelda. She's Nelda? Nelda, she is a new member. She came to our Angelus group on Saturday. She has to have carotid surgery this coming Friday. Nilda. Nelda. Nelda. N-E-L-D-A. Okay, Nelda. She's brand new, so. Okay. And I think she might come here. Okay. With me dragging her. <laughs> the first time. If anybody can do that, you can. Robert. Hmm. Connie. Um, she's Josh's mother-in-law. Josh Youngling. Mother-in-law. Um, she's been given about four weeks to live. Cancer, yeah. Connie, yeah. We were waiting for you. Time to start praying. <laughs> <laughs> so last week I was going to pray for a couple. 
Brian, who passed last week, so pray for his soul, and Stephanie, his widow, pray for strength. Yeah. Wait, slow down. Say it again. So last week we prayed for Brian and Stephanie. Yeah. So Brian passed last week. He did. Oh. Wow. So. And Stephanie's his wife. Yeah. Help me out with the names that I'm praying, okay? In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Thank you again, Lord, for the gift of our life from you. We would not be here um, except for the free gift of your wanting to create. It's at the essence of our being. Um, if we're made in your image, we're made to, um, to offer ourselves as gifts. Not easy to do, because to do that we have to put ourselves away. Um, I ask that all of us be strengthened with your spirit, your grace, that we can do that to make of ourselves gifts. Um, it helps to repent, to put ourselves away, to offer ourselves more fully. Help us to do that. Um, and help us to learn to see ourselves more clearly from the readings that we're doing. To, um, that's why we're here. And, and also to see you more clearly, how you are at work in a world where so often we don't see you. We go to church, we're visible, uh, we take part in the sacraments. But finding you in our daily lives, moment to moment, I think is a harder thing. So strengthen us in our efforts to learn from what these poets have to offer us. We ask for a blessing on Connie. She died, Doc. She's got four weeks. Four weeks. Um, um, hmm. Be with her in these last hours. Um, um, take away all fear from her. Let her awareness that she won't be here and will have to give up everything soon. Let her know that, that that's just the beginning of something so much greater on the other side of this life. And um, increase in her a spirit of hope and help all of those who will let go of her be consoled, help them to be strengthened in their faith in you. Let it be so for all of us. For, I'm sorry, Marcy. Nelda. Nelda. Um, watch over her in her surgery um, at the end of this week. Um, protect her. Let no harm come to her. Um, and help her to have a good recovery. Let the surgery go well for her. And Brian, Brian and Stephanie. Stephanie. Husband and wife. Yeah. Um, bless their marriage here at this moment of separation. Receive Brian into your kingdom. Um, wash away all his sins and let our prayers um, speed him. If there is purgatory, if there are things still for him to take care of, as it is for so many of us, um, wash them away. Um, let our prayers help him. Um, help Stephanie to be consoled. Let this loss strengthen her in her faith, um, knowing that she will see him, believing, trusting that she will see him again um, in a different light with a greater love for everybody when they do meet. Help us all to remember that um, in our own separations too. Um, um, thank you for um, our time tonight. Watch over us, help us to bring good, clear minds, open, receptive minds to all that we do, um, and um, do everything we can to live these things as we learn them in our own lives. We offer all of these prayers, Lord, in your name, Christ, 
of our Lord. Amen. Amen. Can you pull out the poems? Let's read. I had meant to read these last week because we were dealing with the end of Winter's Tale, and as you all know, um, it, the whole action of Winter's Tale was moving towards the death. I mean, all these losses that the kingdom had suffered. And nobody knew going into that ending, this is such a good thing, nobody knew going into that ending what they were going to expect. They didn't know that when they got back to Sicily, there would be this reunion and a resurrection, right? I mean, it's a wonderful play in that sense because it's a reminder of a surprise for all of us. That's our faith. It was for Paulina, it was for Hermione, that's what they held out for, so... But, it, but there was this death, this winter's tale hanging over the play, this long penance. It was a winter's tale. That was, that's what it was about, a penance. Leontes' contrition, his learning to feel sorry for the things he didn't know he would do, and all the joy that came to him because, um, because he learned to see his sins and, um, and, um, and then met with this unexpected blessing. The, you know, the, the resurrection of his wife, uh, Hermione. And all that that said to us about art. Anyway, I had planned all these poems dealing with death. That sounds sort of bleak, but it, but, um, it wasn't because, remember, d- death for us um, is a brief interlude. I mean, we, we approach it, we should be approaching it with hope, knowing, believing that on the other side of it is joy. Um, we're asked, the church's um, call to us is memento mori, remember death. Memento mori, memento mori, remember death. If we start forgetting death in our life or we get morbid about it, it seems to be more out of touch with our faith. The church asks us to keep that alive daily, to die daily. We're supposed to be dying, trusting that we're getting better by doing that so that we're prepared for that final moment when it comes. Um, but as sometimes happens with me, I forgot because I got quickly involved in the in the class and forgot to read the poem. So this these are tardy. These are supposed to have been read last week. I'm going to read them now, and then the poetry that we're going to do from now on forward is going to come forward from the Renaissance into 18th, 19th, 20th century poetry. So we'll the poetry we'll be reading will will be located in our world. But these belong to the Renaissance, the Shakespeare's period. So I want to read Ben Johnson's On My First Son. I think we may have done this before. And um, and Death Be Not Proud on the second page, John Dunn's. Just a couple of brief comments. I would like you all to read these aloud. Would you please go home. Don't put these in your folders and bury them in your stacks when you get home. Take these home, pull them out, and read them aloud. Aloud, please. I'm asking, I'm asking. I'm going to read it on my first son. As I read this, keep in mind a couple of things. One is that Ben Jonson lost his son. He's a poet. He's one of the great Renaissance poets, lyric poets in Shakespeare's time. Um, And the loss leaves him feeling chastised. Like, I think, hopefully all of us, that when we lose somebody, the loss moves us so much that we begin to reflect more deeply than we do when we take things for granted. And that's just, 
so much of our part. Yeah, that's true, isn't it? Death strikes us, and it, um, it so shakes us that often the good that comes out of it is that we reflect more deeply about things in a way that we don't when we take life for granted. It's one of the ways in which death can be a gift. Johnson is chastised by this loss. He loses his son, whom he dearly loved, clearly. And in this state of feeling chastised, he reflects on things and he realizes that um, he was too possessive. One of the things he learned at that moment because the son was taken, he lost him, was that he was too possessive. He acted like it was his, like so many of us do. It's mine, my wife, my husband, my child, my daughter. I hope you all hear that. If you've all watched Tolkien, you know Gollum. <laughs> and is going, it's mine. That, that, I, think one of the greatest, I think one of the greatest temptations for all of us, and one of the things that, I believe this pretty strongly, that one of the greatest things that all of us slip into is this possessive kind of love. It's mine. My husband, my wife, my child. It's mine. Um, my space. My body. My body. God, it makes me shudder to think about it. My body. Nobody's going to tell me it's mine. That that possessive love has such a hold on us that, it, that we, we're not aware of the selfishness with which we do things. So Johnson was shaken out of that. He lost his son, and he becomes aware of how possessive he is. So one of the effects of that loss is to make him vow to be more careful in the way he loves. And the other thing that he recognizes in this moment is that having lost him, he realizes that things are, on, things are with us on loan, that God gives us these things. They're only ours for a time. We cannot hold on to them. They're not ours. They're gifts. So listen to the language of this poem as I go through it, and you'll hear a father... Um, God. God. You'll hear a father saying farewell to his son. And being chastised by it, sorry. Um, listen to the language um, and hear his reflections because they're the result of this loss that it seems to me makes him a better man. Okay? It's one of, I think it's one of the most beautiful poems in our language about death. Ben Johnson's on my first son. Farewell, thou child of my right hand and joy. My sin was too much hope of thee, loved boy. Seven years thou were lent to me, and I thee pay, exacted by thy fate on the just day. Oh, could I lose all father now? I wish it could be done away um, because of the pain. For why will man lament the state he should envy? Because to leave this world is to leave all of its pain and go into blessedness. Why, why, would, why do we grieve over death so much? Oh, could I lose all father now, for why will man lament the state he should envy, to have so soon scaped worlds and flesh's rage, and if no other misery, yet age? Rest in soft peace and asked, say, Here doth lie Ben Johnson, his best piece of poetry, for whose sake henceforth all his vows be such as what he loves may never like too much. To the next page, Dunn's Death Be Not Proud. Okay. 
remember that so many of these sonnets, Shakespeare, are, 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 um, are, um, um, are conducted through quatrains, four quatrains, you know, that just move, and um, we've seen that before in Shakespeare. Dunn's using the same sort of sonnet form. Um, one of the things you, you wouldn't appreciate, we've talked a little bit about scansion, we haven't done it much because it's not the place, but you know that most poems in Shakespeare's time were written in iambic pentameter. Da da, da da, da da, da da. And wherever they have inverted feet, it's like a counterpoint in a piece of music. Those of you who know music know that you can establish a pattern and then by varying from it, it makes that thing jump out more. It gives it greater emphasis. It's called counterpoint. Um, poets do that because you know they're, they're, they're really disguised musicians is what they are. Um, Listen to these opening lines. It's a, it's, it, it's, a, it's almost like a couple of trochees. Boom, 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 boom. Remember, it's, it's usually ba-bum, ba-bum. A trochee's boom, boom. And, um, an an or a, no, a trochee is a boom, boom. It's an inverted foot. It's the word I'm It's a, huh? No, it's not. Um, spondy. The spondy's um, got, um, two syllables equally emphasize, boom, boom, okay? So it's, it's usually a boom, an I, an I am, or a trochee, boom, boom, a stress and an unstress, or a spondy, boom, boom. I mean, those are typical feet, and, and there's lots of others that poets play with, but those are the tra traditional feet because they follow our spoken language, but because our natural spoken language tends to be iambic, that's just one of the features of our language. Listen to this opening, death be not proud. Here's what I hear, bum 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 bum. <laughs> I, I didn't think I'd hear that, I didn't. You all know what I'm talking about, it's Beethoven's, right? I, it's hard for me to believe that Beethoven hadn't read this or wasn't reading it when, when he was composing his, what is that, the fifth symphony? Yeah, the fifth. Um, I'm serious about that, bum 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 bum. Death be not proud. I don't want to read it like that, but but th this poem is so unusual for that opening because it is such a strong, emphatic opening. If you read any of the other poems that we've read and look at the openings, they'll tend to be iambic or a strong trochee, one one inverted feet, but two inverted feet next to each other is unheard of. That's how strong this opening is. Just thought I'd point that out. <laughs> Now go home and listen to Beethoven's fifth and read this poem and see, see if you think Beethoven's responding, meditating on, if he's, if he's meditating on that in this, when, when he writes the fifth. Dunn's tenth sonnet. Death, be not proud, though some have called thee mighty and dreadful, for thou art not so. For those whom thou thinkest thou dost overthrow, die not, poor death, nor yet canst thou kill me, from rest and sleep, which but thy pictures be, much pleasure. Then from thee much more must flow, and soonest our best men do thee to go, to go. Rest of their bones and souls delivery. Thou art slave to fate, chance, kings, and desperate men. This is really beautiful because we usually think of death mastering us. There's not a line he's saying here that doesn't put death down. Um, so we take pleasure with thee and... and um, Thou art slave to fate, chance, kings, and desperate men. 
And doth with poison, war, and sickness dwell, and poppy or charms can make us sleep as well and better than thy stroke. Why swellest thou then? When short, step pa- when short sleep past, we wake eternally, and death shall be no more. Death, thou shalt die. And so in both of these poems, there's the hint of hope you know, afterwards. So I wanted to lighten them up with Winter's Tale because death hung over, hang, hung over that poem for so much and then had this startling ending. Okay. Okay. Um, fasten your seatbelts. I, I don't know what else to say. Just a, I want to just do a very, very quick review. Very, very quick review. Marcy asked me to define art, and I don't know that I'm going to define it to your satisfaction. But but let me just give it a shot, and I want to be brief because I've I've got these other things, and and I'll be thinking about it this next week, Marcy, to see if if there's something I can do to improve on it. It's like the logos. It's Yes, I know. It's, 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 That's why I ask you. It's, That's why I ask you. It's so ubiquitous. It's so present that we take yes, it for it granted is. a lot. Um, right. let, let me give um, two qualities of art that should help us set it apart from other things in the world. Because remember, it's a thing like anything. It's like um, an oak tree or an oak leaf or a car. It's a thing. It's an actual thing. So the question is, what is it? How does it differ from these other things? <clears throat> St. Thomas said that um, the, the principal quality of art is beauty. That, um, and he likens it to Christ because he sees Christ, the Son, not Christ, we're not there yet, the Son, the second person yet, we're still in heaven before he comes. The Son is an image of the Father. So in that sense, he radiates the Father. you all clear we're not with Christ. We're in the, we're in the Trinity. We're in heaven. Yeah? Is that clear? Say that again. Christ comes into history at some point, but he comes as the second person of the Trinity. So he and the Spirit and the Father lived eternally in an eternal kingdom. They had their own, each one was a person. Um, One God, three persons. That's our belief. So the Son is the image of the Father. When the Father conceived himself, when the Father thinks about himself, just like we do ourselves, when I think about myself or Jane thinks about herself. She conceives an image. Yeah, that the father's conception of himself—it has to be a person. It can't be anything else because he himself is a person, not a force, not energy. He's a person. So if he conceives of himself, it has to be a person. The image of himself, begotten, is is the son. The love between them can't be anything other than a person, because God is personhood. So the love between them is the Holy Spirit. So the three of them are one nature, three persons. That's our belief. Um, So the Son, Thomas says, is the image of the Father, whole, united, one, and beautiful. Um, And that, that's one of the paradoxes he presents us with is the sun when he's, on a, when he's on a cross. Because we look at that as, that's when we did Winter's Tale. If those of you will go back to Gerard Manny Hopkins' poem, you know, the, um, and buckled. Remember that line where he buckled, all those powers were brought together and buckled? 
that in that moment, the, the most grotesque moment for us when God is being killed, executed, he is more splendid than anything in creation because his goodness shines forth in that moment. That's one of the great paradoxes for us as Catholics. It's one of the reasons we should like grotesque comedy because we know that in things grotesque, there's a beauty there, as there was in Christ. We should not turn away from ugly things. Our belief holds us to that. Puritans want to clean everything up. We shouldn't. We should make a place. We know that the world's under construction. Um, so beauty in the world um, has the same properties as the sun. And Thomas says those, the, the properties are, it's interesting, there are three. Um, it has unity, like the Son. He's one, like the Father. He has harmony. He's perfectly in harmony with the Father and the Spirit. And light, he's luminous. He reveals the Father. So when he, come, I mean, when he says to us, you know, in the scriptures, um, I come to show you the Father, in, in me you see him, um, we're to see those properties unity, harmony, light. So Thomas would say the fundamental principles of every work of art is unity. It's one thing and not another. It's this, it's Melville. We, from the very beginning of our time together, I started talking about works of art as wholes. We have to learn to see them as whole, not parts, because when we start seeing parts, we miss something. We have to learn to put the whole thing together to see what the whole action is. That was a fundamental principle from the beginning. Every work of heart has a unity, an integrity, a wholeness to it. It's not broken up. And there is a harmony between those parts. It's not ugly. It's, you know, Shakespeare doesn't put in a scene that distracts us and takes it off that really belongs in another play. Everything that happens in Wintertail belongs in that play. Everything that happens in Othello belongs in that play, not Hamlet. Right? If you brought part of Hamlet into Othello because it's beautiful, it wouldn't fit. It would, it would make it ugly. It would lose its wholeness, its integrity. And it has the property of claritas, light, that there's something um, intelligible. It means there's, there's a light there. I'm assuming that every time we read these poems, we, we come away feeling that a light has been given to us. We know something. Our, our minds are lit up. Yeah, we think. We can call that words and make it reductive, but clearly it's more than words. Those words are causing our minds to stir, to have light. No, I mean, don't all of us, when we come away from these, don't we feel like our mind is working like a light is going on and we're learning to see? A light is getting um, cast on the darkness. We learn to see more. A greater light is brought to the world. So it's not just words in sequence. Those words make for a light. And, and it lightens our mind, we see more, and we bring that light to the world. We have, hopefully, we have a better understanding. Yeah? Is that? So he said, every work of art has those three, those three um, qualities. Integritas, integrity, unity. Consonatia, consonance, harmony. Claritas, light. Those three qualities, okay? The other difference between art and other things in the world using words, because now I'm getting more specific, is that art has as its end 
its own good, its own radiance, its own beauty. Everything else using words has another object. It has a practical end. The good of art is in itself. The difference between art and propaganda is propaganda has another end. It's got a political aim. Art means for us to rest in the beauty of that thing. It's almost like a four glimpse of heaven. And, and you know how seriously I take it. When we were done with the Winter's Tale, I was saying, this is a foretaste of heaven. This is the resurrection. This is a moment of real forgiveness. Leontes did horrible things. Um, he learned to see the wrong in what he was doing. He felt contrition, remorse, and he spent a long penance, and he comes to this joy, and he can rest in it. Everybody at the end enters into this great fullness. We talked about what Perdita, that which is lost, is found. What was found? This bountifulness. Everybody shares in this great rich bounty at the end of Winter's Tale, yeah? So we rest in it. We take a joy, okay? James Joyce said that um, the didactic art, and I agree with Joyce, by the way, on the, didactic art is like pornography. I know that's a sort of harsh comparison, but it's real in the sense. All, both of them have an end outside of the artwork. They want to get to something, yeah? When the nature of art is, is to bring us to a rest in that. If that isn't clear, here, stop and think for a second. What if um, Merchant of Venice had ended just after the courtroom scene? Would anybody have felt a satisfaction? Would anybody have been able to rest? Don't we rest in the end of Merchant of Venice because we've gone through this ordeal and we come out with everything resolved and we're happy? Yeah? So good art brings us to that. If, if This is one of the reasons I hate horror movies today or demonic movies. I mean, they leave you, or, porn, or pornography, they leave you wanting something outside the artwork. Good art, the best art, I think, always takes us to, to some evil, some disorder. It shows us something about ourselves. I've been saying this from the beginning. It shows us something about ourselves we don't want to see. It's prophetic in that sense. The greatest artists have the courage. I really mean this. They, in my mind, they belong with the saints in some ways. They have the courage to face things most of us don't. One of the things we've been seeing from the very beginning since we started the Iliad, most men don't acknowledge their sins. They don't want to see their failings. We saw that. The opening scenes show us men doing things with no sense of the implications of what they're doing. How true is that for most of us in our life? We go about our lives thinking everything we do is okay without seeing that so often the consequences that we do aren't always good. We don't intend them, but it's part of our fall. So the greatest artists always take us in and reveal that so we can see and learn and hopefully feel and get better. If there's any other point to this course, I don't know it. No, truly, right? I mean, why, why are we here? I, I have no business being here. I should be back in UD, you know, teaching literature as literature. This has got a catechetical aspect to it. So all art has as its, in its nature, the good in itself there. The rest of things using words, Marcy, this goes more because it, it, all art, or literature, we're not talking, I'm not talking about painting or music or, you know, pottery or uh, architecture. 
literature uses words, so it's distinct from painting and music, but it's different from all other forms of things that use words by having an end in itself. Every poem that we've read, it's hard for me to believe that when we were finished reading those poems, you didn't feel a sense of satisfaction. The, the four-year-old who pricked her, when we come to that end of the poem, something's happened. We went through an action. Somebody was hurt. And then there's this amazing light that goes on, and we see this tremendous goodness. You know, something happened. Same thing with Johnson's poem, no? Don't we feel that he comes to an end? He's imagining his son, he's imagined somebody coming to his son and saying, um, what was the meaning of your life? And his son says, this is wonderful, the son is returning his father's love, the intimacy. He's, he says to the imagined guy who's asking this question, what's the meaning of your life? Because he's dead. Rest in soft peace and asked the boy, if he's asked, here doth lie Ben Johnson, his best piece of poetry. What could a son say to better compliment his father? I am his best piece of poetry. He loved me that much to give everything he could to me. Here doth lie Ben Johnson, his best piece of poetry, for whose sake henceforward, henceforth all his vows be such as what he loves may never like too much. And doesn't that bring us to a... It's like the end of a piece of music. And I know you guys feel this because I can't believe you haven't come to the end of a movie and wished you'd never watched it. <laughs> I, I really, 90% of the stuff coming out of Hollywood fails in its ending. It does not know how to conclude stuff well. It makes it sentimental or cynical or brutal or... Um, okay, so that's as good as I can do right now, Marcy. Uh, but that's what we've been doing. I mean, every one of these artists, every one of the works that we've read have these qualities. They, are, they, they help, they reveal something to us to help us see the epics all deal with some disorder and, and something that goes on to answer them, to, to bring something better, you know, an answer. That's been one of the traits of everything that we've done. And all the lyric clones have had that same quality too. So... Okay, um, very, very quickly. Um, no more questions from you. No more. Uh, uh, <laughs> I'll send you a little dab about what, I won't read it. About what Jack Maritain says about art. Oh. A few, just a few sentences. He's a, um, if, any, if you want to read somebody really good who's a modern, read Jack Maritain. Um, couple qualities to art. I'm, I'm going to name three here. Just in the context of what we've been doing coming out of Wintersdale, because I'm just looking back. I want to just look back for a brief moment. Because all along since we started, I've been giving you these qualities of art. I've never stopped. So let me give you three more here. I would say that poetry gives us knowledge carried to the heart. That's what Alan Tate says. Poetry gives us knowledge carried to the heart. Remember, we've talked about the different kinds of knowledges that philosophy, history, sciences, for the most part, they keep us in our intellects, in abstractions. Good poetry takes us into the depths of our hearts and opens them so that we, we can bring to our, knowledge, our intellectual knowledge more of our hearts. 
Um, it's one of the reasons for my wanting to do this class is because I really believe that there's a humanist aspect of Catholicism that we've lost in a Protestant world. If you turn away from nature and you look at man as depraved, why would you want to look at him? Mm -hmm. um, the Catholic tradition has always been richly humanistic because Christ entered. He, he transformed our human. He, he made it sacred. Um, so, and we believe that there's nothing he didn't experience. He didn't give in to evil, but he certainly suffered everything. He, he knew it that way. And he certainly had to identify it with, with everybody he worked with. So it's really an integral part of our faith, this humanist tradition. And, and I mean, one of the questions that I, I tried to leave us with last week at Winterstep, how important is good art? If we lose good art, do, do, don't we lose a, a power of renewal in our society? And I, I'm thinking broadly of our society. I'm also thinking more narrowly of our church. If when we start losing artists in our church and they don't keep moving with the spirit, the church gets out of touch with those. We always need good artists. They're the ones who, who, who work with the spirit in time. I'll, I'll make this, I'm gonna underscore this in a, in a minute, but one is that poetry offers this knowledge carried to the heart. I'm gonna say also it's a form of consolation that it, off, it, it consoles us in our struggles here because without it, we're left with a dread of judgment. If we're, if we're starkly in the presence of God or Christ, um, the, the, the possibility of that some kind, sometimes can strike us with fear. So the poets have picked up the work of prophet, the good ones. Remember, I'm always, it's the good <laughs> ones. Because most of them are, most poet, I mean, most writers are not. The ones that we're dealing with today are, I mean, through this time are special. Art offers us a form of consolation. It helps ease us in our struggles. To, to, to read through Winter's Tale is to help take us through an agonizing burden to, to live like Paulina did with the man who killed her husband, who's responsible for the husband of her death, and not let her grief want to make her tear him apart. I mean, she's extraordinary what she does to stay by his side, putting herself away for the hope of something better for everybody. How many of us can do that? To enter into that action, um, in a sense, helps console us. It gives us the strength to, 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 to bear up when things don't go the way we want. Because so often our lives are full of turmoil and losses and struggles. And so art, art is also a form of consolation. It, it helps us. It's also mimetic, and that's one of the most important things we came that I wanted to stress last week. Remember, if art imitates nature, and nature is the end of thing, then art's going to stop there. But if nature is ultimately, if nature ultimately conceals a resurrection element, and art imitates that, then art has within itself a principle of renewal. And I made the point: Jewish art. Islamic art cannot do that because they don't believe in a God that died and was resurrected. So there will always be something lacking in their art, whatever, however good it is. It'll never go. If, if we're talking about, if, if we believe that Christ is really God, if you believe that, and he died for our sins and was resurrected, and an artist is supposed to imitate reality, remember to come out of the cave, he's got to imitate that. 
then any artist who doesn't deal with that is in some ways failing that challenge. The greatest art artists have to do that. I would say Homer, Homer's not a Christian, but I would say Homer gets as close to that as possible. Shakespeare does, Dante does. I'm going to argue Melville does, and Faulkner does. When we read an art that doesn't do that, it's leaving us trapped. It could be sentimental. It may make us feel good for a while. Those feelings are not going to last. So art is mimetic, but in our perspective as believing Catholics, we should see that there's something else we should be seeing in art, asking of art. Because if we settle for art the way the social world gives us to it, we're in a sad way. Because most art, I think, puts us to sleep. It leaves us in the cave. It may satisfy, it may pander, Dante would have argued that. It may pander us, it may appeal to the worst sides of us, it may exploit us. I believe the great amount of art coming out of Hollywood today is exploitative. It's not pornographic, it just exploits our emotions, our feelings, our beliefs. But how much of it goes, how much of it risks looking at evil, genuine evil, in any time, let's say our time, and then finds a way to answer it? It takes a special artist to do that. I would say Melville does it. I believe Hawthorne does it in the 19th century. I believe Faulkner does it. And I'll try to make that case as we go along. But so, um, at Winter's Tale, we were left with his statue. Um, the, the, in the instant when Paulina says, do awaken your faith, <clears throat> descend no more, come out of stone, remove yourself from your grave. Um, in some sense, that's an allegory. I mean, it's, it, it's an image. It, it's an image of an action that I believe Shakespeare believes all art should accomplish, that art should transform us. It should bring to life these powers. Um, and in some ways, um, I'm going I'm to go even farther with this. I didn't bring this up, and I don't want to go into it today because we don't have time, but um, we didn't talk about this, but I'd like to just throw this out for you to think about. One of the motifs that Shakespeare uses through that play is the motif of being a prisoner. When Leontes asks um, Pauline, or Hermione to persuade Polixenes to stay, remember in the beginning? She does what a husband can't. A husband says to his friend, stay, and he's not going to stay. If a wife goes at him, it's going to be much harder for him to refuse. And she has a phrase in there where she says, or, or something, or else be my prisoner. You'll have to go back to the beginning to find it. And remember that the babe is a prisoner, and the mother is a prisoner. And when Paulina comes to visit Hermione, the guard won't let her, and she, and she says, the babe is not a prisoner, it's free and enfranchised by nature because that babe has no part of the father's sin. So this whole question of being a prisoner and trapped is one of the underlying motifs of that story. So one of the questions I've had, I don't want to press this, but just for you to think about, when Hermione comes down from that statue, she's freed from an imprisonment. How much is that an expression of something that goes on in most marriages without the calamitous kinds of things that happen with Leontes and Hermione. That is, because we're not perfect with each other, is there some effect, some way in which we, we are prisoners to ourselves and keep each other prisoners some way? I mean, I think that's one of the underlying things, that 
It, it's only when you go through an action that finally takes you to a moment of forgiveness, where the forgiveness is complete, where you're freed for a husband and wife. And it, it doesn't have to be as disastrous as it was for Hermione and um, Leontes. I think there's some way in which that goes on in all of us. And we're, and we're, the, tr the church is here to help us forgive, to be forgiven, to work out of it, to, you know, to, to learn to love. Remember what I said, when you have no reason for loving anymore. Because that's what Paulina Hermione did. I hope that's really clear. That's why I took such time with the, with the uh, supernatural virtues. Love isn't real until we have no reason for love anymore. That's what Christ did. How many of us can do that? That's a hard thing to do. And my question is, until we do that, is there some way in which we're keeping the people we love in prison? So art is doing all of these things. Um, it's, it's, it's dealing with these much deeper things. It's helping us to see things and grow in our faith and you know, all the... All that's a part of the really important things in our life. We looked at Autolycus as the, as the clown figure and how instrumental he was for bringing the... He's, he's a, he looks like a nothing figure. But Doc, say what you said. I don't remember you said that one of, the, one of the things that you come to appreciate this time when you're reading was the comic aspect in the second part and what it... How did you put that? That the gods worked out what they were going to do in the comic hack, not in the, you, know, you think of the gods as being serious and awesome, and so they would be in the tragic, and I mean, Apollo's oracle is in the tragic, but all the working out um, is done in the comic section. It's in that section that is so light we could pass it by, remember, I, that we right, can overlook, right. huh? Yeah, I was just thinking about that, how, that you know, you're tempted to tune off. Right. Because you're like, oh, blah, blah. Right, yes. <laughs> and that's where God's, <laughs> that's where he's most active. The tragic action is people being too willful. I mean, they're having their way. There's a danger to that. In the other one, it's, we're in a pastoral setting. It's comic, it's rustic, it's funny. And it's there where all these things are beginning to happen to push the action Towards its end, so he remember I said that that, that image when we when um, Antigonus lays down the bait and then runs off and he's eaten by a bear, and the father the shepherd father sees it and he describes the bear as having dinner on the man and the humor of that line signals that we've entered a new world of a bear having dinner on a guy. That isn't the way we would talk about it because that would that's certainly not the way we look at it, but Shakespeare's bringing us into a world and helping us to enlarge our way of life, particularly death, and, and grisly things. That was a good pun. <laughs> no? Okay. And we talked, I don't want to, we talked about the ending, we've been talking about it all night, so it's just, it's, it's the bringing together of this, both actions, both regimes, male and female, through this action of love, with the help of the gods. And it's all imaged in that chapel scene with Hermione coming down from the statue and, and um, reaching out for her husband. Extraordinary act of love. Um, so, tonight. Okay. Um, 
I'm, I don't want to. I don't want to go back over these. The difference between an epic and a novel. We did the, the crisis. Um, I'll come back to it again because I want to get on. Remember that the major crisis in 19th century is that is the two ways of reading. Um, have come into conflict and created this division between them that gets wider and wider in time. Um, one of St. Thomas's great accomplishments is that he, he took all of the various ways of knowing at his time, philosophic, scientific, you name it, and reconciled them. We don't have anybody who's doing that right now, so science and Bible, biblical, the scientific way of looking at things and biblical, are divorced. I mean, there's a broad separation. And it, it's made for this division within ourselves that really, I believe, needs to be healed. Um, um, a couple of things. The other thing to be, um, to hold on to here is that um, remember Melville's writing at the time far enough away from the American Revolution that Americans are becoming more self-consciously American and one of the problems they're facing that they've become aware of is the need to find their own tongue to produce a literature that reflects America and I made that point last time if you look at all of the British novels being written in the 19th century take all the great British novelists Fielding um, Trollope, Dickens, Jane Austen, Thackeray, and go through the whole 19th century, if, if you look at them, they're all secular. Two of one. I mean, the one, I love Jane Austen. I, I hope one day I can thank her because I, I, I cannot say how the, the, the debt I feel for her, what she gave to me. Um, she opened up a whole domestic world of love that nobody else did. And I think she did that because she was such a good reader of Shakespeare. Um, but you won't find God in her novels. If she deals with it at all, it's very indirectly. In Mansfield Park, she touches on it indirectly. The, talking about a property and the way people used to pray and no longer do. You won't find her dealing explicitly with metaphysical questions. Women tend not to do that anyway. It's the men who go to metaphysical depths. But nobody in the, in the, on the European side of the Atlantic deals with religion until Hawthorne and, and Melville. So there's something fundamentally religious about the American founding that keeps that in front of us. It, it makes our country in some ways stronger, better. It also makes us more violent, far, far more violent. That's, that's one of the paradoxes of our, of our culture. True, it really is a part of us. If you, if you look at the movies coming out of Hollywood today, the greater I've said it so many times, the greater majority of them are horror films. I mean, really horror. If you go to Blockbuster and weekly go down the list of what's coming out, the greater majority is what's horror, violence and... Um, the interesting aspect to this, too, that I think you'd appreciate, if, if you look at um, British novels, um, 19th century British novels on the other side of the ocean, they're all secular and domestic and deal with um, a civic world. Proprieties, decorum. If you look at American novels, they tend to be apocalyptic, and that's true today. Machines that are going to bring an end to the world. 
If you, if you look at a movie like Die Hard 20 minutes ago, a, a man had to go to, through the roof. He had to do a million things to get back together with his wife. There's the sense of a, apocalyptic proportions, in proportions to everything that goes on in the American character. We're on the edge of apocalypse all the time. If, if, you, if you look at the movies, they always have to be greater, a, a tsunami, an ocean, a city. We're always on the edge of disasters. That's the American psyche. I hope you're all relating to this, because I, I can't think of the movies, but I, I can't watch movies without, I mean, movie after movie present. We don't, in Jane Austen's world, you go into a dining room and a, husband, a man and a wife or a woman talk. Give me a recent Hollywood movie where a man and woman sit down and learn together. That's boring. <laughs> <laughs> they, they flap their lips, but they don't listen to each other. <laughs> or you go into a restaurant and one of them's on a cell phone. God. There was a time when there were a whole bunch of disaster movies. The, the ship one and the towering. They and never stopped. They never stop. And the machine that's threatening our existence. What era was Mary Shelley and Jekyll and Hyde in? Were they English? 19th century. Yeah. Stevenson. Yeah, yeah, yes. Okay. Just very quickly. Oh, one last thing before we turn to more directly to, to Melville. Um, remember I said that it's so important to keep in mind when you think about this book, because I'm sure you've all experienced it's a, it's a much more dense, um, there's a finer articulation of things, Mo, or Ishmael goes into great detail about a carpet bag, a wheelbarrow, a street. No, I mean, don't say boring. <laughs> he looks at everything. He looks at everything because everything has a meaning, and I want to underscore this because in the modern world, nothing does. The argument that I'm going to make here is that in in strange ways, Melville is taking us back to Dante's world. That he's opening up being. Ahab wants to go through the world crushing things. He wants. He has an end. He wants to get from here to here. It's, a, it's the practical intellect of Leontes. We talked about it, the masculine intellect, wanting to go from here to here. Ishmael puts us, we, 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 we enter a world in which we're suddenly asked to pay attention to things and not let this driven, wanting to get from here to here, block out the world. So I don't want to hear anybody say boring about this book. Um, but that's almost childlike. I mean, that's, that's what children do. I mean, they, you know. Well, but how many children could have the focus or attention to bring? Children don't have that kind of, they're not going to take, they're more open to wonder, but they don't have the, the consciousness or the, if, the language. If you, or, but if you present it to them, I mean, if they're not going to on their own develop that interest, but you, if you put it in front of them and you ask for an opinion, it's... it's yeah, but they won't be able, they won't be able to go to the depths. And, and remember that everything that he does is working with what he will call, I'll come to it later, linked analogies. That everything on the surface is always related to something more. That's why I'm saying he goes. He takes us back to a Christian world where everything means. And how could it not? If God made the world, this stuff is not just denuded stuff. Things are not just empty things the way they are. In the modern world, things are things for us to use to make the world what we want. It's stuff for us to manipulate. 
So we created virtual worlds. The Christian world says, no, God's there. We have to be careful of nature. Homer was that way, right? The man who, the man who presumed to master nature was presuming to, ma to, to master the gods. So Ishmael is taking us back to a world of, of in, in which the principal thing there is being. It's rich and deep. There's a plenitude. But we have to learn to be patient and pay attention because that's not the modern mindset. Okay, That's the first. And the second is, remember too, that in all previous epics, every single previous epic, you go back. It isn't just the ones confined to our list. If you go back historically over all the great works of literature, every one of them deals with some injustice. Every single one of them deals with a disorder. The Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid, Dante, you can go on. You can take every, every British novel in the 19th century. There's something wrong. In Jane Austen, in every, in every novel, there's something wrong. The, the appeal to us is the sense of suspense. What's going to happen? Will the, will, the, will the man and woman come together? There's a sense of adventure and mystery and suspense that keeps us engaged in those things. Otherwise, why read them? We don't know. We want to know. We want to find out. Um, but there's always a disorder, some injustice. This is the first epic in which the injustice comes from nature. Always before it was a human being. Hector, the suitors, Turnus, the, the tempters in Dante's world, um, Iago, Claudius in Hamlet, right? The king killing the uncle. Um, Leontes himself destroying nature. Allowing his mind to take the things in front of them and turn them into an evil that was untrue. They didn't have the character. He made things bad that weren't bad. So in every story we've read, the antagonist has always been a man, a person. This is the first time in a major epic in which the author is raising a question about something inherently evil in nature. The object here is nature itself. Ahab wants to kill that whale because he believes that that whale is a symbol of something else, evil in the world. I'm going to argue that that's a Manichaean element, that that goes back to a heresy in Christianity that's entered the West that we, that, that with the Protestant Reformation. That nature now is inherently depraved, fallen, corrupt. That's why we've got so many horror stories coming out of Hollywood. Yeah? Well, anyway, we're gonna, so we're going to have to look at that to, and see what Melville is, is showing us here in mid-19th century. So there are two ways of looking at the world, one scientific, one biblical. But what they're dealing with is this question of justice and injustice and something that seems to be wrong with nature, that nature seems almost malevolent, that Ahab's going to see this, male as a, this whale as a creature actually jumping out intending to wound him. And everybody's going to buy into that question or quest because they've all suffered some injustice. They feel as if there's something wrong with nature. All of us suffer. Everyone, it's as if something's wrong with nature. And we want to get back. So we carry this hatred, this wanting to get even, this black-white view, very black-white view. Those are qualities of the modern world that... that um, 
Melville is dealing with here. So, let me stop for a second. I we've got. I um, I really wanted to get the book, and I feel like we're not going to make it. But so let me talk. Let me any any questions before before we go on. I have a question. It seems like in the story that uh, Ishmael is no longer telling the story, that Melville takes over. Where do you see that happening? Um, when they start talking about all the different kinds of whales and... Ishmael's taking, I mean, it's clear that Ishmael's writing that, but it's, it's <laughs> J well, let me, on your, in your, on your side, there are times, it's interesting, be, because there are times when Ishmael as a na narrator can't do what's being presented, that, that it's almost presented like a drama. There's no narrator, and, um, and we're left with that problem. And, and, and I don't think we're meant to say that it's Melville stepping in. It's that Melville has to reveal certain things to us that are not available to Ishmael because he's not present. So we will get scenes presented to us and I don't, it's, I don't think we're meant to see that that's Melville stepping in. It's that he doesn't, he can't get around that fact because so he's... So it's, it's a, just a narrator. We, yeah, I just think, yeah, that because, I mean, I, I could go through it. I don't want to do it right now. But some of those scenes will, you know, he, we're not getting it narrated. It's like a stage play. They're presented as if characters are just speaking on their own. And it's not Melville speaking. It's, I think we're supposed to assume that Ishmael is... Con there in the narrator, but he's got to get things out that he can't, and Melville just um, allowed it to go that way. I mean, I don't know what else to say about it. I just got to about where she is in the book, and I thought it was pretty clear to me that it was Ishmael speaking about things, and it was clearer when he said that um, he chose to depart from the current scientific, or then current scientific, approach on is a whale a mammal is it a fish and he says i declare it a fish yeah because that's what he wanted to present it as. Yeah. And i mean what i didn't take that as melville i said okay that's the way he's speaking about mm -hmm. it. yeah in the cytology chapter i'm not sure if that's the one in your mind where he yes, lays out the, the whole one. and, he, and he, he he makes it clear that it's in his own voice at one point because he concludes it and says i can't remember the words but he said I hope that I never complete anything in life because, you know, the, because things, it's his way of saying all things are open-ended. Yeah, he'll be proven wrong. So, I'm afraid we're not going to, here, very quickly, the Abraham story. This is so, so important, so, so important. Abraham is called out by God to be the founder of a nation. And um, I just want to, I, I want to, I don't want to assume this, um, not in this group. So ordinarily I wouldn't take this time, but um, in Genesis 16, um, you all know that Sarah goes to Abraham and um, and asks him to bear a child with Hagar because she's too old and infertile. They haven't been able to conceive a child. So Abraham 
conceives with Hagar, and they produce a child. Um, so, and he and he, he will change. His name will be changed. Um, and so will her. She's Sarah, and her name is changed to Sarah. Sarah. Because she's Sarai before, right? Yeah. Yes. He conceives Ishmael with Hagar. It should be here. It should be here, uh, Ishmael. Um, right that way. And um, Sarah is so um, humiliated by the fact that a slave woman has a child by her husband and she doesn't, that she wants to cast him out, the child. And this is what, this is what, this, now I want, I want to take this seriously for a minute because Islam is not a small problem for our world, never has, never has been. Um, Hagar is chased away, um, the angel comes to her and says, go back. Um, the angel of the Lord also said to her, after he says, return, I will so greatly multiply your descendants that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are with child and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has given heed to your affliction. He shall be a wild ass of a man, his hand against every man and every man's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. Now hold on to this because he's the founder indirectly of Islam. Now hold on because that needs to be qualified, but I just want to make this line clear. The line of descent is from Abraham through Moses, you know all of this, and David. Yeah? And that line unfolds with the understanding that a Messiah will come, the promised one will come. And Abraham's told that he will be the founder of a multitude of nations. Okay? Um, God goes to Abraham and makes the covenant, the circumcision, and it's at that point that his name is changed from Abram to Abraham, because that marks a change with a covenant. So the two can't be separated. It's Abraham then. And um, now this happens then. Sarah is told by God that she will have a child, and she laughs, or Abraham, and Sarah laughs when she hears it. Um, God even challenges her on that, and um, I don't think she deals with it very well. But as for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I will bless him and make him exceeding. I will bless him and make him fruitful and multiply him exceedingly. He shall be the father of twelve princes, but I will make him a great nation but I will establish my covenant with Isaac. So the covenant child is Isaac. That's going to be Faulkner when we get there, the chosen one. Ishmael is the exile, the outcast. So one of the questions that we have to ask from the beginning is why does Melville choose Ishmael as the narrator of this book? I just hold on to that, okay, because he's the outcast. Interesting, I don't think people hold on to this, but that, that's in Genesis 16, I think, Genesis 16, yeah. In Genesis 21, what, as the children grow, Sarah is offended again and sends Hagar away with a child. Hagar is frightened that they're going to die. She leaves Ishmael to die. He's, he's young. Um, 
Um, this is 2115. When the water in the skin was gone, she cast the child under one of the bushes. Then she went away down over against him a good way off about the distance of a bow shot, for she said, let me not look upon the death of this child. She's given him up. Ishmael's going to die. He's a babe. God heard the voice of the lad, and the angel of God called to Hagar from the heaven and said, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the lad where he is. Arise, lift up your lad, and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water, and she went and filled the skin with water and gave the lad a drink. God was with the lad, and he grew up, and he lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. So, this is scriptural. This is prophetic. Now, hold on just for a second. If you can just hold on. Christ comes into the world, and the Jews... So, the covenant tradition is carried forward with Christ as we believe, that he is true God, that he's the Messiah. The Jews believe that he's not, so you have the Judaic line here, and around the 7th century, um, a man of the tribe of Ishmael, called Mohammed, goes into a cave, he has a private revelation, and on the basis of that revelation, he claims to be a prophet whose roots go back to Ishmael. So Islam, Islam, grows out. Now two things I just want to underscore. One of the things that Christ did when he entered the world was bring law and love together. We, those of you who have done the Dante, you can't miss that. He came to fulfill the law. We make so much of compassion today. We act like compassion is going to answer a problem without the law. And I hope everybody's clear that when those two things get separated, it's a disaster. He fulfilled the law. He didn't destroy it. He met it. He fulfilled it with love and asked us to do the same. And we have in him a God who is willing to die to do that. The Judaic line broke off for that and continued to hold on to the law. And we know from Paul that the law is death. That when we hold each other under the law by itself with no mercy, it becomes cruel and harsh. Um, Islam broke off from the law. And have a so they, their roots are under the law. That's why the what do you call the the Siri the the law? Quran. Not the Quran, but the law. What's it called? The Sharia. Sharia law. Because in 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 the Jewish race and in the Islamic race, you've got people who are under the law, and if they're under the law, you know it's going to happen. Anybody raised under the law is going to be really sensitive to injustices, and when those injustices come, what's going to happen? You know what's going to happen. Put those two peoples together. What's going to happen? They are geographically. I know, I know. But, but I, I mean, you know where this is going. Take away any element of mercy. Certainly take away anything divine, forgiveness. What do you have? Revenge and war. I mean, it's not going to stop. The interesting thing, I don't want to lose sight of this right now. God allowed this, or at least with um, Ishmael. I don't want to say that about Muhammad because that's a completely different thing, okay? But it's really important to keep this in mind. Ishmael is a descendant of Abraham. Huh? Of Abraham. Yeah, although it, it represents a break off from Judaism. 
Now, how much Melville was aware of this, I don't know, but it's clear to me that he was a reader of the Bible, so he would have known this in some way. What he made of it, we'll have to ask, but, but keep that in mind because Ishmael is his narrator. This whole thing comes to us from him. He is the outcast one. He does not belong to this world. Although, and remember, he's Presbyterian. We know that from the beginning. So he's a Christian in this world, but what we find in these opening chapters is that there's almost nothing good going on in this Christian world. I'm, I'm, I mean, I want to take you through it. I don't know we'll get going tonight, but everywhere he goes, he finds failures and hypocrisies, problems everywhere. So he's the outcast one. He's Christian, but he's not at ease with what he sees. Um, and you know that at one point he takes, he becomes a close friend with Ishmael, and he walks down the street aware that all of his Presbyterian brothers are making faces at him because he's hanging around with this cannibal. So he's the outcast. He, he belongs outside this world, and it's from his perspective that we get a sense that something's not right in, in this New England world. And, he, and he, he spends the first, I don't know, not the first third or first quarter of the book, you know, in, in those opening chapters on land where we're exploring what's going on. Just quickly to hold on, just for you and your read. Take a look at what happens with Peter Coffin with Lazarus outside in the gutter. Remember the Lazarus story in the Bible. You all remember that. He ends up in heaven when Divus or whatever dies or is in hell wanting Abraham to dip his finger in the water and, or to go back. And, and Christ's parable says it's not going to happen. He didn't listen to Abraham. He, um, he wouldn't listen to the prophets. Um, so Lazarus is outside Peter Coffin's um, inn. Watch what happens with Father Mapple, with Mrs. Hussey at the boarding house when the door is locked and her response to the economic loss, the money that she has to pay for that. What does that say about her as over against the person inside who might have committed suicide? Um, Peleg and Bildad in the Jonah story, in Father Mapple's sermon, remember he talks about the captain? The captain wants to test Jonah out because he knows if somebody's fleeing from sin, he can charge him more. What does Bildad and Peleg do when Ishmael goes on board? They give him practically nothing of the take. That is, they're charging him more. So there's a, a, a strict parallel between Ishmael and Jonah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to argue that I think Ishmael is a Jonah figure, that he, this is Jonah. We know that. Everything lines up the same. Interesting point about that, that um, the Jonah story, the captain wants to take advantage of Jonah because he knows he's in sin. And Jonah's willing to go along. How much is that a, pair about, a parable about our own world? How much is what any of us does How much does anything of what we do allow somebody to exploit us because we're hiding from ourselves or God? That's the whole point of the Jonah story. I want to ask that starkly. How much does anything of what we do in the world, the jobs we take, what we're willing to do, the sacrifices we make, how much do we undertake that in that spirit because we're hiding from God? Don't want to have to do what he does because you know that's what Jonah does. He want, he, God asks him to do something and he won't do it. And, jo and Ishmael's in that same place. We know that. He goes on board, and the captain, Peleg and Bildad, both scam him. 
Um, we'll look at that when we get there. <coughs> now here's, just, just hold that in your mind, because I, um, I want to, um, one of the first glimpses we get of Ahab is of an incomplete crucifixion. He's described as if a crucifixion mark clove his body but only went part way. Is there a failed crucifixion in this culture? A failure to, is there a failure to take up the cross? Are all these Christians living nominally Christian lives so that Christianity is virtually dying out? I'm going to just have to put it starkly. If you, if, it's all comic, I mean, what he's showing us. But if you look at all the characters and what's going on, even though it's told from Ishmael's point of view and he's sort of an innocent and, I mean, it's hard not to love him, at least for me. But it's a pretty dark, it's a pretty dark picture he's giving us of, of um, 19th century Christianity. Because at this point, it looks to me like it's, it's dying or dead. And let me set against this. This is what I wanted to do. I want to just, I want to take a break for a minute, and then I want to go back to Moby Dick and look at a couple of passages. But um, when I thought about this opening, um, um, as Ishmael goes through it, it's pretty clear that in a very comic way, like Shakespeare does in his plays, he's representing a New England Christianity in a spirit of parody of of critiquing it. it. It's a pretty serious indictment, even though it's comically presented, like a, like a good writer would. But let me put that there. Like a writer with a good heart, who would be able to look at that and present it in such a way that it appears the way that it does to us. Just, you know, we go into a bar, we see people, we have to sleep with a cannibal, I mean, whatever, it's comic. <laughs> but when you put it all together, what you become aware of is that there's a, a Christianity is not being lived. Um, what I wanted to do for a moment is step outside of what I do with literature, and this makes me a little bit nervous because I've never, I tried not to do this this whole time. You know that my whole focus has been on these works. And where I, where I speak to our dogmas or our tenets or our principles, I try to do it pretty directly, but my focus is on the work of literature. That's my focus. I, want to, I try to take real care with that. Because if I believe I do, I, I can help us to see some things in the literature. My point is not to be a catechist here. Even though that's, <laughs> that's why we're together. And so, but tonight I'm going to step outside of that and for a few minutes I'm going, I'm going, to, be, I'm going to be a catechist openly. And it makes me a little bit nervous. Because um, I'm going to have, at some point, I may get a call from Father asking if, <laughs> telling me that some of the people are really upset and wondering if I'm not a heretic or something. But let, me, let, me, let me come back to this moment where Christ enters the world. If Melville's critiquing Christianity, and I believe he is pretty seriously, is it a fail? How do we understand the failure? America generally, there's very little said about Catholics in this book and there are hints of something that I, I want to go to later, but it's, it's, it can't be our concern because it's not Melville's. Melville's looking at a New England culture. I want to go back so that we're clear, if we're going to be clear on, on Melville's critique, um, to, to be really clear on exactly what's going on here. So I want, to, I want to go back to Christ for a moment. 
And I ask myself the question, what are the major things that he brought to us that we are asked to keep, keep in our minds, to hold on to, and to live? Okay? And I hope, I hope this covers it, but if, if I don't, I'll be glad for your help here, okay? But let me, let me say this. Christ came into the world um, to offer himself in atonement for our sins because we couldn't so that ultimately we could rejoin the Father, that we could see salvation. And he did that and, and entered into it knowing that he would die and be resurrected. So he promised us in this salvation, made clear to us, that his death on a cross would not be the ultimate end of things, that there would be a renewal. Easter is a celebration. The two major celebrations in our belief are Christmas coming into the world and Easter, his dying coming alive. So that life as we know it here on earth will be given to us eternally, multiplied infinitely. Paul makes that clear. Okay. So he came to give us life when we were facing death. If we, were, if we were here without him, we would all be damned because what, what becomes really clear with him is that all of us are in a state of sin, the more so when we don't admit it. Father's homily, for those of you who are in, the, in, the, in Mass this morning, went right to that, that reading this morning takes it to us, that all of us are in sin and very often we don't know it. Did the Jews know it? Or put it different, did the Jews admit it? Did the Romans admit it? I mean, for the most part, they didn't, or they would have followed Christ. It, it took years, centuries for conversions to take place. It's not easy for us to see our sins, and so often we don't. And Christ came in to help us do that. So the first thing I'd say is he came to atone for our sins because we couldn't ourselves. If left to ourselves, we're damned. That's how blind we are. Um, that's the difficulty we're in. Now, having said that, let me say this. He, some of the basic things he asked of us, he asked us to repent constantly. He followed up John. John was his, what's when, the forerunner? Predecessor. The forerunner. He, John asked us to repent. Christ picked that up, explicitly said it himself. He's asking all of us to repent from our sin. That means becoming aware of them and feeling contrite, real, admitting that we've committed these sins and it's important for us to change our hearts, to repent. Leontes is a good example, I mean, just to get something we've all experienced. To love each other as he did, he gave us that second commandment towards the end of his life. He said, um, slaves do not know their master. You're not slaves, you're my friends. I call you my friends. He washed their feet. Um, asked us to do the same. That, that we bring that kind of humility to what we do with each other. So he loved everybody, gave a new commandment that um, we have to see puts a very different kind of relationship to the law, looking back to the Mosaic law. Okay. That is, he made forgiveness that great, that important. He asked us to pick up our cross and follow him. That means he asked all of us to go to a cross to suffer with him to enter into the crucifixion, somehow not avoid the struggles in our lives, not run away from them, not, not do what somebody under the law would do, hold somebody under the law and not forgive what he did. You know, Remember, I think the reconciling of the law and, 
and love and forgiveness are so crucial here. To pick up our cross and follow him. He enjoined us. It was a commandment. He said he would have nothing to do with us unless we drank his blood and ate his body. That was a commandment. It was a condition. He made it clear that we were to enter into a sacramental life. To not just know him in knowledge. To not just read the Bible. Right? He, he asked us to enter into a sacramental life. So knowledge of him was not enough. Um, he created the church to propagate his teaching. He sent his disciples out. This is crucial. He told them to go out to bring him. That means we are, we are being asked to take Christ to the world, and that also means we are supposed to be listening to each other. Because if we're carrying Christ, we should be hearing. It isn't just going to the Bible and reading the Bible. If Christ says, propagate this, take this out, we're to carry him, we're to be him. That means we should be listening to each other pretty seriously. I'm saying that so seriously because I don't think we do. We have to, that is, this is, this is my way of underscoring something really important. The Catholic Church is communal at its roots. Amen. Now let me go back to this because this is absolutely stunning. Mohammed claims a revelation from God. It's a private, re it's a private revelation. Who can confirm it? Who can confirm? Who is there? It's like Joseph Smith. Didn't he have a private revelation? Yeah, yeah. Look at what happens with Christ. With Christ, you've got Matthew. Wait, I want to make this really clear. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Okay? Before, this is so crucial. Before the evangelist wrote, there was a tradition in place. Something was already happening before they wrote, or they could not have written. So to make the Bible everything is to skip a step. The tradition was already there. And moreover, when we get Christ, who do we get it through? We never get Christ unmediated, ever. Christ speaking to me. He's speaking to us through Matthew, Mark. That is, those men are telling us stories. Why should we believe them? Well, one of the reasons is because there's four of them, they're so different, and yet they're all saying the same thing. That is, it's Catholic. There's, it's not isolated. This is not about private revelations. Islam is based on a private revelation. Confirm it for me, please. There was a tradition underway. One of the most important aspects of, of Catholicism is our belief that this position, that, that the Holy Spirit works through people, the church. Christ instituted the church. Why? To carry on his work, to embody him. If we don't listen to each other or the church, we're thrown back on our private revelations again, making the world what we want. By the, the, that, was, I mean, that was Father's sermon this morning, his homily. He, he goes over that again and again and again. Interesting point. Sorry to do this. This is why, this is why I'm not a catechist. <laughs> I should stick with literature. Um, here's, what the, here's what the reading was this morning. This is stunning. This is stunning. This is the reading this morning. I want to... I wanna, I want to underscore this because we're, the reason I'm doing this is because we're going to look at a very serious critique, mid-19th mid century. 
We're still living out this crisis. This is how important it is to me. If, if I'm overdoing it, I hope you all pardon me, but I take this critique seriously because I think we're in trouble in our country. But this is from Paul, okay? Not one of the evangelists. This is from Paul. Um, For Christ did not enter into a sanctuary made by hands a copy of the true one, but heaven itself, that he might now appear before God on our behalf, not that he might offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters each year into the sanctuary with blood that's not his own. If that were so, he would have had to suffer repeatedly from the foundation of the world. But now once and for all, he's appeared at the end of ages to take away sin by his sacrifice. Just as it's appointed that human beings die once, and after this the judgment, so also Christ, offered once to take away the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to take away sin, but to bring salvation to those who eagerly await him. The word of the Lord. In one sense, we can say Paul, James, John, were the first theologians. They're giving us readings of Christ. Why? Because everybody was making of Christ everything they wanted to make of him. The disciples had been trained, they knew, but they were going to go out and speak to an audience. We know this because what happens to the church in the first 200 years? It's fraught with heresies. Everybody makes what they want of him. What's at the the center of this? What we've been doing from the beginning, an act of interpretation. But are we getting it right? Are we reading it well? Because left to ourselves, we've seen what a mess we make of things. Here's what Christ says. This is so crucial. This this just happens to be this morning, so I'm just drawing on it. This is from Mark. The scribes who had come from Jerusalem said of Jesus, he's possessed by Beelzebub and by the prince of demons. So Christ confronts them and says, how can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. If Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand. That's the end of him. But no one can enter a strong man's house to plunder his property unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can plunder his house. Amen, I say to you, all sins and all blasphemies that people utter will be forgiven them. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never have forgiveness. This is Christ, but is guilty of an everlasting sin. For they'd said he has an unclean spirit. By the way, once, um, just a passing thought here. Think about um, the strong man being Satan, tying up everybody, and Christ coming to free them. But the point I want to make here is, whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never have forgiveness, but is guilty of an everlasting sin. Christ, what does he mean here? Because Christ makes it clear every one of us can be forgiven no matter how bad the sin if we ask forgiveness. Yeah? I mean, that's at the center of our faith if we ask forgiveness. What's the one sin? Not asking. Huh? Not asking. Not to to forgive. (laughs) And, And in some sense, to deny Christ. Because where does the Holy Spirit come from? He was commissioned by Christ. Everything he does is to bring Christ to us. Deny him, how can any of us ever be forgiven? We're denying Christ. We, we can commit the leontes, let it be whatever we want. Murder, David, 
killed Bathsheba's husband. He let it. God loved him. And he, and he went and did penance afterwards. I mean, we know that. It can be the worst sin. How many of us bring forgiveness to what we do or what our people are in it? Don't forget Pauline and Hermione. I mean, that's an extraordinary example of you know, what we're talking about. Right, sorry? You said um, bring forgiveness to what we do. Do you mean repentance? Bring repentance, but bring forgiveness to everything we do with others. I mean, to constantly. So, here, this is, this is the point that I want to make right now. Ishmael is an outcast one. We know that. We're, Melville's looking at a Christianity that's in serious trouble in the 19th century. And we have to ask why. For a moment, I wanted to just step outside the story to be really clear on some of the fundamental things that we believe in from Christ. And I want to just underline, I just wanted to underscore this. Just remember, Mohammed's vision was absolutely private. We know that, historically. It's not somebody making it up. We know that everything in Catholicism that comes from Christ comes through others. We have to listen to each other, and we have to listen to the church. Christ founded the church to take himself to the world. The most important thing that's going on in the church is that it's the work of the Holy Spirit in time. It's the embodiment of Christ. When we start quarreling with the church, it's important to see we're quarreling with Christ. Christ commissioned the Spirit. He said, I would send you the paraclete. It's in his name. Everything he's doing is to recover his people, to return everything back. If there's one sin that's unforgivable, according to what he says, whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never have forgiveness. It's to, it's to deny Christ and forgiveness. You can look at it, it's despair or arrogance. I mean, an arrogance that's so great that a person thinks he doesn't need forgiveness. So what we've got is um, a community here. Now, one of the reasons I want to emphasize this right now is what we're going to see when we enter into this world is that everybody in this New England world is alone. When Ishmael goes into the chapel, what does he find? Everybody isolated. Everybody alone. They're all in the misery of their own death. When they go on board ship, Melville's going to call them isolados. Isolated men. Ahab, absolutely isolated in his quest. Ishmael, isolated, but interesting, as, as we watch him go along, he more and more comes into communion with others, beginning with Quiqueg, a barbarian. A barbarian. What does Ishmael bring back to us? If he's a Jonah figure, he's, he's the only one to survive this, like a prophet figure? What is he telling us? If there's a critique here, what are we meant to learn? How much, of, how, much, how much do we have to take seriously that his, his critique of his indictment of Christianity is an indictment of us? What do we learn from this man about America, its founding? What we've inherited from the 19th century, what we're carrying forward. Those are some of the major questions for this book. Let me stop here. Sorry. That's why I'm not a catechist. <laughs> huh? Well done. <laughs> Scares me. It's easier teaching literature. <laughs>
Anyway, you, I hope you see, I keep that in mind when you set it against this world because in some ways this world is being judged against Christ. What did he bring? What, in what ways are, is this New England world failing? How are we failing? What's going on with Christianity? What's, why is it? And, and to put it another way, I put it that way in the letter, um, Islam goes through periods where it has a massive influence in the world. It does today. The converts to Islam, the numbers are staggering. Islam increases itself either by conquest or it fills up a void left by Christianity. What are we not doing? How much of this indictment of, the, of this New England culture is an indictment of us? So let me leave it there. Okay? Means we get out on time. <laughs> Thumbs up from Karen. Okay, we, we jump in Moby Dick pretty seriously next week, okay? It's good to see you all again.